0: So Luke chapter 18, a certain ruler, a young, he's called the rich young ruler. He um, comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? Like, what must I do to be saved? That's his question. And Jesus says, well, what's the law say? You're, you're an expert in the law. What's the law say? Um, how do you read it? And the expert in the law says, well, you should um, love the Lord your God with all your heart mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is like, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Like, go do that, and you'll live. And the boy says, I've, I've done all that, though. And he says, well, there's still one thing you lack. And Jesus, it says in, in the Gospel of Mark, when it records, it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, go Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. He says the man left very sad. Uh, Luke chapter 9, Jesus is walking along a road, and a man comes up to him and says, Jesus, I want to follow you. I'll go wherever you want to go. And Jesus turns to him and says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He says, I'm homeless. I'm homeless. Do you want to be homeless? Do you want to be homeless? And another guy comes up and says, I want to follow you, but first I have to honor my father and wait until he's dead. I have to to bury him. I have to take care of my father. And Jesus says to him, let the dead bury their own dead. You follow me. He says to another, follow me. And he says, no one who puts his hand to the plow but looks back is fit for his service. If plowing metaphor here, if you you look back while you're plowing, you'll, you'll plow in a circle. You can't do that. You've got to look straight ahead. You've got to look exactly on where you're going if you're going to follow me. Um, my favorite, maybe, is Luke chapter 14. It says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them. So large crowds are coming. Everyone's coming out to see Jesus. They want to see Jesus. They've heard about him. They're following him in mass now. And he turns to them and says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, his wife, and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. You want to follow me? Hate your mom. (laughs) We were thinking about making that our new church slogan. (laughs) Wasn't sure if it'd work or not. Don't you read this and you just think, Jesus, man, do you need a hug? Like, what's wrong? Why do you have to be so mean? All these people, they're coming to you. They want to follow you. The rich young ruler, he wants to follow you. These crowds, they want to follow you. All these people, they want to follow you. Why do you have to be so mean? But here's the thing, as you you start thinking about it, you're like, well, from everything else we know, the fact that he laid down his life for us, it suggests he's not a mean guy. And it doesn't seem like he's like insecure. Like, oh, I just need to know that I'm more important than other things to you. And it doesn't seem like he, he's really... It's not like he's questioning them in the sense that he doesn't know how they're going to respond to that, right? From everywhere else we read in the Gospels, we know that Jesus knows their hearts. He knows them better than they know themselves. So if he's not mean, and he's not insecure, and he already knows how they're going to answer, why does he say this stuff? Why does Jesus have to say such hard things? And the only conclusion I can come to... It's because they don't know. It's because we don't know our own hearts. Jesus seems to think that if we want healing and forgiveness and restoration, if we want the fullness, if we want to follow him and know what life with God looks like, that it requires extreme honesty with ourselves and with God. And that can only come, well, through a very hard conversation with Jesus sometimes. So a few years back, I went to a conference with um, a a pastor, author, John Ortberg. You may have heard of him. Uh, And he referenced a book that was really helpful for me, um, Michael Novak's Belief and Unbelief. And in that, Michael Novak is a philosopher, theologian, uh, passed away, I think, last year, but um, brilliant guy. And in that, he talks about how convictions or belief, what he would call convictions, come at multiple levels. Belief and unbelief—they look different in different settings. So he talks about three levels of belief. The first one is what he calls public, public belief. This is above the surface. This is what you see. To to very very simply summarize this, public belief is what I say I believe, or maybe more more um, cynically. It's what I want you to think that I believe. So Jenny and I were driving down um, into Philly a while back, and we're driving along Schuylkill, and you know there's always traffic, so lots of stuff to look at. Uh, and and I read one of the signs. It's one of those adopt a highway signs, and it says "Club Risque" on it. And maybe maybe I'm cynical. I am. But I find it hard to believe that they're sitting around in like a staff meeting with all the exotic dancers and the managers thinking, how can we improve the community? I know, let's go pick up trash and and tick-infested weeds. Like, are they doing that because they want to be, they know when you're picking your topless bar, you want the community-minded one? It could be, could be. Or it could be that there's a free sign right there. This is what they want people to see them for. Now, I don't say that in any way to really belittle them because GVS, GVF has an Adopt-A-Highway sign. And it's the same reason. We want the free sign. It's not because we love picking up trash. So, so this is public convictions. Um, public convictions are the stuff of social media. I learned a while ago that what drives likes and shares on Facebook is not what people actually believe. It's not, not at all. It's what they want other people to see them liking and sharing. It's a public thing that they create this persona. Like, I want people to see that I like this. So they like it and they share it because... That's how it's a public conviction uh, in the Bible. There's a, a famous example of this: Herod, the great uh, King Herod, during the uh, time of Jesus' birth, right? The Nativity story. If you've been around Christmas time, you know this. Where there's this evil king named Herod, and the Magi, the three we three kings, come to him and say, "We're looking for the king who was born." What does he say? <gasps> Go find him and come back to me. Tell me where he's at. Why? Because I want to worship him too. Now, does he want to worship Jesus? No, he wants to kill Jesus. So his public conviction, though, what he wants them to believe is, this is, he wants to worship him. So public convictions are what I say I believe. They are cheap and often fake. The next level down is what he calls private convictions. Private. Now, private convictions... um, If public convictions are what I say, I believe, private convictions are a little bit deeper. They're what I think I believe. So Ortberg used this example. He said, so say there's a a type of person who thinks they're really interested in this other person romantically. As long as that other person is in a relationship, they think and they really believe that I want to be with that person. And they they dream about that person. They long to be with that person until that person is suddenly available and expresses interest in being with them. And then suddenly they realize they're no longer interested in them. Ortberg says there are such people like that. We call them men. Men. Does the man think that he wants to be with her? Yes, he sincerely believes that. It's a private conviction, but when it's tested, you see, oh, he doesn't really believe what he thinks he believes. In the Bible, we see the famous, famous example of this in, in Peter. The night Jesus is going to be betrayed, he looks at his disciples and says, You, you're going to be scattered. You're, you're, going, you're going to abandon me. But don't worry. Holy Spirit's going to come, et cetera, et cetera. And what does Peter say, though? In that moment, he says, no, not I. If everyone else does, I will never leave you. I would never abandon you. I will die. I will kill. Of course, what happens? He's at the fire, and he denies Jesus three times, and the cock crows. Now, did Peter, in that moment, believe that he would never leave Jesus and deny him? Yes, he believed it, but it When it was tested, it was not true, which leaves us with the last, what uh, Novak calls core convictions. If public convictions are what you say you believe and private ones are what you think you believe, core convictions are what you believe, period, period. It's your mental map. It's your ideas about how things are. They define reality for you. You would never violate those no matter the cost. So this is, um, this is fishermen sitting at their boat and Jesus comes by and says, Come follow me. What do they do? They leave everything, the boat, everything as it is. They even leave their dear old dad right then and they pick up and they follow Jesus. In the Old Testament, this is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar says, bow down to my idol or we're going to throw you in the fiery furnace. And they say, they say famously, our God can save us. And here's the three words. But if not. But if he does not save us, we would still never bow down to you. We will literally be thrown into the fire and die. Because it's a core conviction. It's what we truly believe. The Apostle Paul, he's sitting in prison, facing possible death. And what does he say? I consider it all rubbish. Rubbish. I would give it all away. I would be in prison forever. I would die. Compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I want to know him. I want to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know him. It's a core conviction, even in the midst of suffering, even when everything's taken away, even when he's facing death. And probably the the biggest example is Job, right? He loses his family. He loses all of his money. He loses his house. He loses everything except his nagging wife. (laughs) And then his friends come to cure him up. And he's sitting there on the pile of rubble. He's lost everything in his life. He's scraping his, his open wounds with the shards of, of, of pottery that are around him. And what's he say? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in that moment. If you bless the name of the Lord in that moment, you know it's a core conviction. So, so this is what we say we believe, this is what we think we believe, and this is what we believe. My public convictions may be fake, my private convictions may prove false, but I will not violate my core convictions. It's my belief that does not change no matter the circumstances. It makes it through the testing every time. Now, do you see the problem with this? If honesty is a prerequisite for true healing, restoration, hope, joy, for following Jesus, honesty with ourselves, honesty with God. So I might say I believe lying is a sin. I might think that lust is horrible, dehumanizing evil. I might say that it's better to give than receive. I might say that I love God more than anything. But until I'm tested, I'm not sure. Until Jesus looks at me and says, "Uh, you, I love you. So if you want to follow me, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then follow me. Until he says those words to me, I don't know where my core convictions lie. Which leaves us with this nagging question, how can I hope to be honest. How do I know I'm not just deceiving myself and living in private convictions that I think that's integrity? Integrity of course is, is that your core convictions are the same as your public convictions. That's the definition of integrity. These are one. That what you say you believe and what you think you believe and what you truly believe are one. That purity of heart is to will one thing. It's simplicity. How do we get there? And the answer, oddly enough, as we comb through history in the scriptures, is that it's the same for us today as it was for first century followers. We have to have a hard conversation with Jesus. Today, I want to spend today spending a few moments showing you, not just telling you, but showing you a way of reading the scripture that does not require any Greek or Hebrew. doesn't require all the history stuff that I so love, but it doesn't require any of that. A way that views Scripture as living and active, not just a book to be studied, but as the voice of God spoken to you, that you can hear Jesus' voice in it. The thing is, I can't get... tell you how to read the scriptures in this way. I have to show you. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at um, a huge section from Luke chapter 10. And I'm going to take the first section to use it as a teaching moment. We've gone through this before, so I'll kind of speed through this. But Luke chapter 10, we're going to go through this passage and we're going to look specifically of what does Jesus teach us about how to read the scriptures in this way. And then we're going to practice it right here today. It's going to require a little bit more audience participation than normal. But you guys are excited about it for this holiday weekend, right? Yeah, look at that. Okay, so let's do this. All right, so we're going to start Luke chapter 10, verse 25, and we're going to follow it through a long ways here. So let's go along with this. Um, This is our comfort zone. I'll just do the talking on this one. Okay, reads like this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? How do you read it? How not just what is in the law, but how do you read the law? Like you know this what we call Old Testament, how do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. It's that simple. It's that simple. Love God with everything you have. Love your neighbor as yourself. You're done. But it says, verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself. I want you to hear this. Um, The man, he knew the right answer. He had already studied the text. He was an expert in the law. He knew that what is he supposed to do? Um, But he wanted to justify himself. What does that mean? That means he knew that he wasn't loving God with all that he had. With all that he was, he knew that he wasn't loving his neighbor as himself. So rather than weep before God and say, God, I'm not living up to your standard. I can't do this. He wanted to justify himself. Our word for this is when your righteousness is not dependent upon what God gives you. It's upon what you do when you justify yourself. We call that self-righteousness. So we ask Jesus, who is my neighbor? Let's do a text study. Let's objectify this, depersonalize this. So, like, if we look at the semantic range of the word neighbor, who is my neighbor specifically? Who do I actually have to love as myself? Because the man knew that he did not love others the way he loved himself. So he wants to narrow the semantic range of neighbor. Therefore, he can get around obeying this law. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down to Jerusalem from Jericho. I want you to see this. Rather than than get into that, Jesus could have done this. He could have said, well, let's say, here's all the five definitions of neighbor. Here's what it means. But he doesn't go that route. Instead, what Jesus does is he paints a picture. He says, there's a guy on this actual road. He's going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And this path, as everyone knew at the time, was really, really dangerous. Along the way, what you expected to happen, this, this good Jewish man was set upon by robbers, beaten, beaten, beaten. All of his stuff was stolen. He's left on the side of the road, left for dead. He's sitting out there baking in the sun, and, and a man comes by. This man could be a salvation. It's a priest. But what does he do when he sees him? He passes by. He won't, won't help the man. And then a Levite, so a a guy in full-time ministry, sees the man again, and he, he does the same. He sees the man, and he refuses to help him. He passes by. There might be reasons for that, but for whatever reason, he does not do it. And then a Samaritan, and these are the most hated people of the Jews. Like people that they literally compared to dogs, the person that you despise, the person you can't stand, the person who disgusts you. That guy comes up, picks him up. Binds up his wounds, sets him on his own donkey, takes him to the inn, pays for his care, and says, if anything else is needed, I'll come back and I'll pay that too. And then at the end, Jesus says, now which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? He says, now I want you to enter that picture, I want you to enter that story. If you want a definition of neighbor, you have to enter into this story. The expert in the law replied, the man who had mercy on him. Some think he can't even say the word Samaritan. That's why he just refers to what he did as opposed to who he is. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Jesus shows him and us a way of reading the scriptures, get this, that is participatory and personal. Like if you really want to know the meaning You have to experience it. You have to put yourself into the story. You have to live in that. You have to live the commandment. You have to participate in it. So it's not enough to know the technical definition of neighbor. I have to be a neighbor. That's how you know what neighbor is. We have to experience it. So get this. It's not enough to have the right, the correct answers for Jesus, that's never enough. You have to have the right heart. If God just wanted us to have the right answers, He would have like given us Google and a, and a wiki document, right? You would have given us this manual of like step one, step two, how you respond, technical definitions. But as you go through the scriptures, you find none of that. None of that. What do you find? You find a collection of songs, stories, poems, letters. God gave us a Bible that intentionally forces you to stop, slow down, enter into the story, sing the song, say the prayer, act out the worship. That's the only way you can possibly Know what it means. Jesus invites him and us to read the scriptures in a way that is inextricably participatory and personal. He invites us to come into the story. And can I just say, this is not a new way of reading the scriptures. If you go all the way back to Deuteronomy, when Moses is leading the people out of the, uh, almost to the promised land after 40 years of of wilderness, what does he say? Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says, Now, all this that you've heard, all this word of God, I want you to take it and I want want you to talk about it when you're you're sitting at home and when you're walking along the road and when you're lying down and when you're at the table. And I want you to take it and I want you to nail it to the sides of your doorposts. I want you to wear it on your arms and on your foreheads. I want it to shape everything you think and do. I want it to be everywhere in your life. You have to live it. If you want to understand the word of God, you have to participate in it. Maybe a more visceral picture is Ezekiel chapter 3. God gives him the scroll, the word of God, and says, eat it. Eat the book. Like you have to chew on it. You have to ingest it. You have to make it part of yourself. It has to go through your digestive system. Like that is the picture of what you have to do. You have to experience it. It has to become part of you. Interestingly, uh, John, the revelator, picks this up in, in, in the Revelation, book of Revelation, and he eats it at the beginning of the book of Revelation. He eats the scroll from the angel. And then I personally think that the correct reading of the book of Revelation is from that point on is John vomiting up the word of God for the rest of it because he says he ate the scroll and it became sour in his mouth. That's what the book of Revelation is. John chapter 5, Jesus is talking to some experts in the law and says, John chapter 5, verse 39, You diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you'll inherit eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. That If you're reading the Scripture, if you're reading the Scripture, and it makes you smarter, but it does not lead you to Jesus... If it doesn't lead you to a personal encounter with Jesus, you're reading the Scripture wrong. You don't know the Scripture. So how do we do this? For the next few minutes, we are going to talk about how do you read it? The same question that Jesus asked the expert in the law back then. And I'm going to lead you through an ancient practice that is uh, an abbreviated version of that called Lectio Divina. It's a called Sacred Reading. And it's really fairly simple. But the idea behind it is this. That our reading and study of Scripture should never be separated from our prayer. Never be separated from worship. That it's one, that reading and worship and prayer should all be one action together. If you're really interested in this, you want to pursue it more, there's a really good book by uh, Chris Webb. Uh, It's called Fire of the Word, worth checking out. If you're brand new to church and you've never heard any of this before, don't worry, um, this will be over soon. So here's what's going to happen. I'm going to read one text, just the very next text in the book of Luke here. I'm going to read it three times, and each time I'm going to pause and give you some instructions on how do we experience the text for this reading. And then I'm going to give you a minute or two to just pray and reflect and live in that moment and meet Jesus in the text. Um, We're going to close out then with a song. In fact, I'm going to ask Rob, Rob, if you're available, if you'd come out and help us out with this. Where we're going to start today is is really an image. And I want to start, as we prepare ourselves to actually listen to God, the same way we start with a reading of Scripture every time we come together, I, I want to encourage you to put yourself in a listening position. We are created, body and soul, We're created to worship God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That we meet him, we connect with him the same way we connect with one another. That it is not purely an intellectual cognitive thing, but it's a bodily thing. So I'm going to encourage you now to to position your body in a way that you want to listen and meet Jesus. And in this first reading, before we we get to that, I want to start with an image. And the image is simply this. It's a table. If you would close your eyes and picture a table. It's a feast. It's a meal. That As we go through the Old Testament and then into the New Testament, we see this over and over and over again that Isaiah chapter 25 describes the kingdom of heaven as a feast of rich foods, a banquet of aged wines. Psalm 23 at the end, after you go through the valley of shadow of death, it says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Even though my enemies might still be here in my life, I have nothing to fear because I'm feasting with you. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever and ever. The the place of feasting, the the meal with, with God... Is the the center of our relationship. So as you prepare your heart, I just want to give you one phrase to focus on, and it's from Psalm 16, verse 5, and it reads like this. I'll read it a couple times Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. Lord, you alone. Or my portion and cup. I want to encourage you just to say that to yourself a few times. As distractions come in, as they inevitably do... don't uh, don't be anxious just give them give them to God you're at the table with him if a distraction comes a worry a fear sin guilt anger whatever's coming up if it comes out you're at the table to talk to him about it first reading your only job is to hear just hear the word of God like really hear it let the words penetrate your heart mind, soul even feel the words Luke chapter 10 as Jesus and his disciples were on their way You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better. It will not be taken away from her. As we prepare to read the text a second time, I invite you this time to not just hear it, but imagine yourself in this story. This time, engage your mind. like Place yourself in the scene. Imagine yourself in the room, standing in the doorway. Looking at Mary, making herself at home on the floor with the rest of the men, while Martha's growing in frustration. Smell the food cooking. Look around the room and see this small house packed with Twelve disciples in Jesus feel the hot Middle Eastern air like be in that moment what do you see what do you feel what do you what do you notice in this reading specifically I'm going to ask if, if there's a word or phrase or image that that God might want you to hear like what is that so after this reading, I'm going to ask you to turn to the person next to you. And if, if God has laid like a specific image or phrase or word on your heart, that you would turn to the person next to you and just speak it. Like don't explain it. Just share it. If nothing stands out to you, then then or you it's too private, then you can just keep it to yourself. Don't feel like you have to make something up. Maybe the person next to you has a word for you, though. Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better. It will not be taken away from her. there's a word or phrase or image that that sticks out to you that you feel like God might be have impressed upon your heart or just stood out to you here's your chance to turn to the person next to you and just say the word to that word a phrase or image as in this last reading I want to remind you that the whole point of reading scripture is to draw us to Jesus so as we read this the last time I want you to not pay attention to anything else but imagine yourself there and look at Jesus look to him look at his face what does he want to say to you what does he want you to know today You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. What is Jesus saying to you? What does his look say to you? What is this message for you today?